0: Thanks, Jeff. Uh, great to keep that part of God's Word open in front of you. Uh, you're going to hopefully, over the course of this uh, term, become very familiar with the first nine chapters of Luke's account of Jesus' life. We're going to camp out here in um, verses uh, chapters 1 to 9 and look at uh, what Luke has to tell us about the Lord Jesus. Uh, we've called the series Certain Faith because we want to make sure that you have strong and solid bedrock for what you believe. That's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray that God would help us and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, you're a good God and you've preserved this account of the life of your Son for us. Lord, Luke intends that we have sure and certain faith and we pray that you would do that work amongst us as the author of this book and as the God who is present with us now by your Holy Spirit. And We ask you to do this for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a couple of different ways uh, that you can uh, figure that the world works. You can uh, basically rely on the fact that uh, the world runs on luck. You could say the world runs on luck, or you could say the world runs on karma, or maybe the world runs on faith. Now, what's the difference between these? We have a whole variety of different ways of engaging with the world. Maybe some of you here are doing one of these three, or, or maybe a mixture but If we rely on luck, what we're saying is sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. It just happens. Sometimes you're up. Sometimes it's just it's all luck. And uh, many of you who uh, you know get on a bad string of traffic lights on on your commute, you know what I'm talking about. Is this right? All right. So that's that's luck. Sometimes we're up. The karma the approach, not the karma approach, but the karma approach says that. Something keeps the score, right? So you do good, good will come to you. You do bad, bad will come and find you. Something is keeping an account of the good and the bad in the universe and keeping it all in balance. Or we could be people of faith, and people of faith believe someone is behind the universe and that someone loves and cares for us. Sometimes something or someone. And what we really believe shows up. It's revealed when we wait. What we really believe is in charge of the universe is revealed as we wait. And so, let me show you what I mean by that. Uh, if we uh, believe in luck and we're waiting, then basically we're fatalists about it. Basically, we we give up and we give in, and we just kind of go, "Do to me, cruel world, whatever you do." And I've said it here. How that works out for you is a matter of personality and pizza. And what I mean by that is some of us are optimists. Are there any optimists in the house? Great. I see those four hands. Well, we're having a good day, aren't we, guys? Is that right? Uh, any pessimists, pessimists here? Typical, yeah, yeah. They wouldn't put their hands up anyway. Uh, are there any people who are offended by the fact that we're having a personality test in church? Good. Keep your hands down and just look back at me blankly. Great. No, great. No, that's working brilliantly. Okay. So, But if you're, if you're a, a fatalist, basically you just cast yourself on the waters of the world and stuff happens to you. And if you're an upside kind of person, oh, it'll, it'll work out. If you're a pessimist, it never works out. But that's, that's basically how it feels. And if you have bad pizza, you wake up and the world's terrible, right? Fatalists. If you're, if you're a calmer person, not the calmer person, then what you do is, I'm going to deal with my waiting by working really hard. I've got to stoke the fires of goodness that all this goodness might flow back to me. And if I've done something wrong, man, I've got to work harder at doing the good to right the wrong. So you're full of effort while you're waiting for the thing that you long for. You're full of effort. There is a third option, the option of faith. And the option of faith is an option to trust and work in obedience in patient love. So we just, we turn our lives over to the God who is there, who cares for each of us. And so it's, it's not passive, we, we still do things, but we end up trusting that God's got this, not me. We're not on the streams of fate, we're not working hard to change it. We are entrusting ourselves to the God who's there who loves us. Israel had been waiting. Israel had been waiting. They had been waiting 400 years. The last book in the Old Testament, does anyone know what it is without opening it up? Sorry? It's Malachi, or Malachi, the last soccer player in the Bible. That's a joke. Um, Malachi, 400 years before Jesus. And Israel has been going, God, where are you? Please fulfill the promises that we cherish. We've been overtaken by the Greeks. We've been overtaken by the Romans. Everything is feeling like it's lost. God, where are you? It's been 400 years. Where's God? And so into that environment, we open up Luke chapter 1. I don't know what you might think if there's a plan that God had mapped out. There's a huge plan and he's about to start it. How would you start the grand plan for all the universe? Well, Luke tells us that God starts the grand plan for the universe with an old man and a young woman. And they're the two people that we're going to turn to now. Before I do that, though, I want to tell you about Luke's account. Uh, has anyone got a cupboard that looks like this at the moment? Don't put your hand up, that'd be a shame, wouldn't it? Did you know that there's a uh, wonderful little Japanese fairy who's changing these? Anyone aware of this? Uh, what's her name? Marie Kondo. Okay, right. So Marie Kondo has some magic to sprinkle into your life. Um, She wants to suggest to you that this kind of disaster that you see up here, add Japanese fairy lady, and what happens, sparked with joy, all of a sudden you have less stuff and it's now all ordered and beautiful. Has anyone tried this out? Oh, come on. Yes, it's pretty fun, isn't it, right? Okay, so I prefer a world filled with order. I really do. I like Japanese fairy lady. I think she's wonderful. Order my world. It's good. I want you to see, I don't think uh, Luke ever met Marie Conde, but I want you to see uh, that he likes order too. Have a look me at verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke says that he is going to write an orderly account. He's going to go and find all the sources. He's going to talk to eyewitnesses. He's going to read the background and he's going to assemble it all together for us to present us with an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled. He's writing for a man called Theophilus. And Theophilus is probably the rich person who paid for Luke to do all his work and write the book. And Theophilus is not a Jew. It's a Greek name. And so here he is, someone outside the family of God is having a presented account, an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And I want you to see Luke does indeed order his account. Luke wrote two books. He wrote the book of Luke. Good, yes, you're paying attention. And also the book of Acts. That's right. So he wrote wrote Luke and Acts. In Luke, he wrote all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And in Acts, he wrote about what happened next. And if you've not read Acts, it's extraordinary. Here's the history of Jesus. And then how did the people who followed Jesus become the global church? That's the book of Acts. It's a fantastic read for you. If you dive into Luke, you'll see that it's divided up into a number of sections. Uh, A beginning section, uh, a section of his ministry in Galilee, a section where he's traveling to Jerusalem, and then a section in Jerusalem. This first section here, probably 30 years. This section here, two to two and a half years. About six to eight months here, and then one week here. Isn't that extraordinary? Given the amount of space that they take up. Why? Because they say that most of the Gospels are a passion account, that's the end of Jesus' life, with a long introduction. What's the most important bit? The death of Jesus. And so, what is this? An introduction to the life and the death of Jesus. You'll see Luke is very ordered. He says in 1 1 that he's going to give us an orderly account. In 4.16, Jesus turns up in a synagogue in Nazareth, picks up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. I can't wait to preach that sermon. That's coming up. That's in 4.14. And that starts his ministry in Galilee. He does that until we get to 9.51, where it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. From 9.51, Jesus is facing Jerusalem, he obviously travelled around, but in his heart, in his mind, he's set towards Jerusalem where he will die. And so from 951, we are looking forward to Jesus' death, and we're moving towards Jerusalem until in 1945, I think it is, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. Do you remember he turned over the tables? And that interruption, that eruption from Jesus starts the last week of his life. That leads to his death. So that's the way Luke is ordered. And we're going to look at the yellow and green sections, these first nine chapters for this term. Luke's a prolific writer. And just because I was doing some research, I thought I'd show you Luke wrote the two longest books in the New Testament, Acts and Luke. Well, Luke is the longest, and Acts is the second longest. Put them together, and Luke is the most prolific author in the New Testament, even more than Paul. He wrote up to 27% of the entire New Testament is Luke and Acts. And then in his account of the life of Jesus, Luke brings us 35% of his gospel is stuff that isn't found in the other gospels. Do you know how they occasionally say the same story? 35% of Luke's gospel is Luke's stuff that makes it really precious. I'll tell you why. Because in Luke's gospel, we have the account of the prodigal son. Do you love it? It's only in Luke. We have the account of the good Samaritan. You love that one, don't you? It's only in Luke. We have the account of the widow's mite. You know, the, the one who puts the copper coin in and Jesus commends her? It's in Luke. And we have this account of Mary and Martha. Do you know that one? I think it's a good one for the ladies who are thinking about to going away and to refresh. Uh, I can't make it. I'm too busy. No, no, no. Mary has chosen what's better and it will not be taken away from her. Do you remember that story? That's Luke, right? make the time. So who is Luke? We we find out in the account that Luke is a Gentile. He's not a Jew. That's incredibly important because he sees with different eyes. He's an outsider saying, no, no, I'm not an outsider anymore. Jesus has included non-Jews in God's story. He's a Gentile. He's a physician or a doctor. He's a companion of Paul. He's on missionary journeys with Paul, which means he must have such an amazing insight into the work of God and shows why he has such a heart for the whole world because he was with Paul as he took the good news to the whole world. And lastly, he's a theologian and historian. When he writes his orderly account, it has a purpose and it is a history. He's a theologian assembling all this information and presenting us with an account of Jesus. And so what's he on about? Well, he loves telling us about the kingdom of God. He tells us about the fulfillment. The Old Testament was all looking forward to this time. Tells us about the fulfillment of the word of God. Tells us about Christology, which is a long word for saying he unpacks who Jesus is, the son of God, the son of man, the son of David. We'll get there, don't worry. But Christology, he tells us about salvation by faith. He tells us about salvation for all nations, and beautifully, uniquely, I think, in terms of the the, the amount of time, he tells us about salvation for the least. Luke wants to tell us there is no one outside the scope of the love of God, not tax collectors, not prostitutes, not the poor, not the outsider. They are all included in the love and the care and the plan of God, which means wonderfully. You and I might be included in the plan of God too. How beautiful is this gospel? And so we start off with an old man and an old woman. They are filled with faith and with sadness. And some of us who have taken enough trips around the sun will know both of those things. trust in God and abiding sadness. And I want you to see why that is here. Look with me at verses 5 to 10. according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. It's interesting to note, Zechariah is a priest. He's a holy man. And his wife is descended from the priestly family of Aaron. They could not be more holy or more righteous. But when we hear about an old couple who can't have children, who are we reminded of? Surely we're reminded of Abraham and Sarah aren't we that must resonate with us the holy fam- the, the original founding family of the whole of the Jews were in exactly this situation and so we come to this time when he's given the special honour of going into the temple. It, was, it would have been thousands of people who were looking after the temple. His division of 12 was on that day. He was chosen out of the hundred or so, I don't know how many it was. He was chosen out and it was his job alone to walk into the temple on his own and burn incense in the holy place of God. Now that, guys, that's a day about expectation. I'm all about expectation. When I'm on holidays, I love taking landscape photography, and particularly dawn photography. That's my thing. And if you ever do dawn photography, it's all about expectation, right? You get up in the darkness, and you go there hoping something happens. Sometimes, nothing happens. That's called an unrise. It just gets light gray, right? But it's all about expectations. And some days... Some days, God just paints his palette all over the sky and it is a joy and a delight. But every time I'm there with my tripod in the cold, I'm expectant. And I believe Zechariah walked into the temple that day expectant. God, I have this special privilege. What will you do? What will you do? So look at me at verses 11 and following. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now, guys, I I can't communicate for you how much of a big deal this is. The, the, The last time angels turned up in the whole of the Bible, we've got one talking to Daniel and one talking to Zechariah. It is a long time ago. And now here's Zechariah, this faithful old priest. He's on duty and an angel of the Lord appears to him in the temple on his day. It's magnificent, right? And the angel says to him what all the angels say, which is what? Do not be afraid. It's just important. You need to understand it. The angels are going to say the first thing. Why is that? Because you're freaked out. It's an angel, right? I think because he knew he was on his own. No one else was in the temple at that point. And now there's a presence there. It happens to be an angel, so that's pretty freaky. The angel says, don't be afraid. Okay, great. And then then the most beautiful words come from the lips of the angel. Because when we pray our longings, we often wonder, is there someone on the end of the phone? Do you think that this couple have prayed about their burden? Some of you will know this pain and this longing. And so they prayed and prayed and prayed. And I want you to hear what the angel says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, verse 13. Your prayer has been heard. God is listening. He has listened. He does listen. Your prayer has been heard. And then the extraordinary news, your wife will bear you a son. Can you imagine his delight? This is God bringing the new age into being. And it starts with an old man in the temple. And what does he learn? Well, we're going to see what he learns, but I want you to think about what we can know about the future. Sometimes the forecasts are good, aren't they? We don't mind being told that there's damaging hail when there's going to be damaging hail. Is that right, uh, Oren Park? Amen? Good, right, that's good. But, but oftentimes the forecast isn't right. It's going to be 107 million degrees today and it's only 23 or whatever it is. That, that happens, right? Our forecasts are often vague. I want you to see how beautifully specific the word of God is. Look with me at what follows here. Uh, Zechariah is told in the verses that follow an extraordinary stream of information. Not only is he told that he will be a father, But he is told he will have a son. He will call him John. He'll be a joy and a delight. Many will rejoice. He'll be great. He'll never take one. He'll be filled with the Spirit. He'll bring Israel back. He'll be empowered like Elijah to turn the parents to the children, and he will prepare the people for the Lord. Now, guys, this is all information about John the Baptist who's coming, right? But I want you to know, standing in the temple, all this information is unveiled to Zechariah. And I want you to think with me just about the mechanics. John the Baptist doesn't exist yet, does he? Zechariah's just got the news. He hasn't been home. Wink, wink. Are you with me? He he literally doesn't exist. And God, who is unveiling this incredible plan, who knows all things are happening according to his will, tells him everything about this boy that will be. Isn't that extraordinary? That's our God. And so... He tells him what? I think he tells him everything an old priest could ever hope for, isn't it? You'll have a boy. He'll be great. He'll bring Israel back to God. He'll prepare the way for the Lord. It could not be more wonderful for an old priest. Yeah? And so sometimes, though, it can seem too good to be true. Is that right? It's been Photoshopped, hasn't it, right? Let's all agree. It wouldn't be like that if you actually went there. And we know from the internet, don't we? Uh, it, it'll pop up in a second. We, we know that if it sounds too good to be true, what? Well, it probably is. And so what's Zechariah's response to this incredible unveiling of the plan of God? Well, have a look at, me at verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's a perfectly reasonable question, isn't it? The question is, how can I be sure? That's a reasonable question. I want you to see what happens next. How can I be sure? The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, bucko, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll remain silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. The bucko kind of an interpretation of the Hebrew original. Now, that's a joke. You get it though, the angel says, hey man, I'm, I'm, I stand in the presence of God, when I announce this to you, you'd better believe it, and now because you haven't believed it, you're going to be silent, you're not going to be able to tell anyone the extraordinary thing that just happened, you can't, just bear with it. Now that might have been a blessing to his wife, I don't know, but, uh, but he wasn't able to speak, right? Wonderfully though, his wife is extraordinary, and we see her... Uh, Her response, uh, verse 23, When this time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me. Think of how precious that is. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among his people. She's faithful and he's silent. Does anyone know who this bloke here is? Uh, his name's Edward Norton, and uh, I was, in, I was in, a, um, in a party one night, and this girl came up and she said, you're Edward Norton. I said, no, I'm really not. She said, no, 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 you look exactly like him. I said, it's a case of mistaken identity. Don't trouble yourself any longer. Mistaken identity, right? Guess what? God doesn't make any mistakes. Have a look with me at verses 26 and following. See what happens next. We're six months into the pregnancy of this old woman. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel, he's a busy boy, isn't he, to Nazareth in the town of Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Everyone, oh, come on, you're getting it, right? first thing the angel has to say, no, 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 don't, don't be afraid. I've got got something to tell you. We'll get past the don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. What I want you to see here, this is Christmas, right? But I want you to see something fresh. I want you to see God knows Mary's name. Don't be afraid, woman. Could have said that, couldn't he? Human. No, the angel says, Mary. Now, I want you to know, Mary was no one before she was the most blessed woman in human history. She was no one. She was a virgin, pledged to be married in the backdrops, in the back blocks of the Roman Empire. She was nobody, but God saw her and knew her name. How extraordinary. On top of that, God knows Mary's address to a town in Galilee, God knows exactly where to find Mary, and more than that, God knows Mary's heart. How beautiful. You have found favour with God. God knows you by name and sees your heart. What does he tell her? She is told this avalanche of things. She will conceive She'll have a son. We'll name him Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be the son of the Most High. He'll sit on David's throne. He'll reign forever. The Holy Spirit will be at work. He will be the Son of God. Now, an old man who couldn't have a child was told that he'd be with child. That's pretty extraordinary. A young girl is told that she will be with child, and it's more problematic, isn't it? What's she lacking? lacking a husband. She's only engaged to me. How will it be? And yet I want you to see the difference between the faithful old priest and the faithful young woman. In verse 34, she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The Holy Spirit answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Look at Mary's response in verse thirty-eight. "I am the Lord's servant," Mary answered. "May your word be fulfilled." Then the angel left her. Mary responds with extraordinary faith. I commit myself into your hands, God. May your word be fulfilled. I'm your servant. I'm at your disposal. Now, uh, I was at the cricket last night. That was why, incidentally, Tom said he had been shouting, if you're wondering about uh, anything else uh, with Tom's situation in life. Uh, He was at the cricket. Is that helpful for everyone? Good, good, great. So at the cricket, when something exciting happens, what do you do? You start seated, and then you what? You get up. Now, those guys were celebrating. Actually, it was raining, and they were doing the YMCA, but... um, It was about the most exciting thing that happened in the whole game. But anyway, that's by the by. When something exciting happens, you get out of your seat. You leap for joy. And I want you to see that's exactly what happened in verses 39 and following. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, verse 40, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. They were related, you see. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. Isn't this beautiful? John the Baptist meets Jesus. How do they meet? Bumping tummies. But, but I mean, guys, uh, this, I could take a whole diversion here, but I want you to see, these are humans, aren't they? These are precious people, aren't they? God announces the destiny of both of them before they're conceived, and they have priority and purpose, and they're precious in his plan before they're born. Doesn't that have implications for our world at the moment, church? The unborn are people beloved of God intended for his purposes. That's worth noting. But more than that, when they come together, John the Baptist, who's preparing the way for the Lord, leaps in his mum's womb. How wonderful is that? And she is filled with the Holy Spirit. Wonderful, right? It's just, it's, it's extraordinary. It's a moving greeting, is what I said. Um, the Holy Spirit is present, right? And these beautiful faith-filled women acknowledge the good plan of God. Again, see Luke's priority here to highlight women. But I want you to see John the Baptist and Jesus meet before they're born. How wonderful. How wonderful. So how should we apply what we've learned today? It's a great story, isn't it? We're underway. We're seeing the plan of God begin. We haven't even given birth to the two key people yet. And we're seeing the goodness of God. Yeah. So how should we apply what we've learned? We need to be a faithful church. We need to be a faithful church. See over there it says we want to be faithful, adventurous, compassionate, and enduring. We want to be a faithful church. Faithful in what? Faithful in our prayers of longing. The thing you've been praying that you long for that hasn't been heard yet. God hears and he knows. Be faithful. We need to be faithful in obedience in obscurity. That that sounds a bit much. Let me say what I mean. No one cared about Mary except God. If you're in a place of prominence and importance in society, please be obedient. If you're no one, if you have no profile, be obedient because God is watching and he loves you. Be obedient, be faithful in obscurity. And thirdly, Be faithful in offering yourselves to the Lord. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary said. May it be to me as you have said. Make ourselves available to the living God. So where do I want you to finish? Well, I don't want you to be living with luck as the way you think about the world. I don't want you to be trying to balance karma. First of all, you're overly optimistic. You've got much more bad stuff going on in your world than you know, and you'll never pay it off. I want you to be living in a world of faith where you entrust yourself to the goodness of the good God who is there. For no word from God will ever fail. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you're the great and awesome God who's there. You care for the unborn, for the born, for those who are old and those who are young. You look, Lord, and you see our obedience. Forgive our sins. Strengthen us to love and obey you in faithfulness, but we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.